But I felt like my body did let me down. I wanted those babies like so much and it didn't do what I wanted it to do. I can't imagine anything more important in my life than that. And it let me down like repeatedly. I had such rage. Like I am at this point, just like any relationship we have with like a spouse, for example, you're at points where you're going to be just so angry and need <laughs> space from your spouse or your partner. And that's how I felt during that period. I didn't want to be like pushed to like reunite at that time. I was like, no, I want to sleep in different bedrooms. Can I have another snack? Hey, and welcome to Can I Have Another Snack podcast, where we talk about food, bodies, and identity, especially through the lens of parenting. I'm Laura Thomas. I'm an anti-diet registered nutritionist, and I also write the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Colleen Reichman. Colleen is a licensed clinical psychologist practicing in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She works at her group practice, Wildflower Therapy, And she has lived experience with anorexia, and this experience sparked her passion for spreading knowledge and awareness that recovery is possible. She is now an eating disorder specialist and has worked at various treatment facilities as well as authored a book, The Inside Scoop on Eating Disorder Recovery, advice from two therapists who have been there. She's an advocate for intersectional feminism, body liberation, and health at every size, and she is also a passionate advocate for maternal mental health and an IVF mum times two. So in this episode, Colleen and I talk about a lot of pretty difficult themes. She discusses her journey to parenthood through IVF and through multiple miscarriages. We talk about grief, ambiguous loss, and being really angry and mad at your body and why it's important to allow all of that to be there. We talk about these topics as sensitively as we can, but if it's not for you right now, then just give this one a miss. There are loads more episodes that you can go back and listen to and just come and join us in the next episode. We're also going to be talking about raising embodied kiddos towards the end of the episode, so you could also just skip forward and listen to that part. And Colleen shares some of her really great advice as a mother and an eating disorder specialist psychologist about how we can help protect our kids' embodiment. But before we get to Colleen, I really wanted to remind you that the Can I Have Another Snack universe is entirely listener and reader supported. If you get something out of the work that we do here, please help support us by becoming a paid subscriber. It's £5 a month or £50 for the year, and as well as getting you loads of cool perks, you help guarantee the sustainability of this newsletter and have a say in the work that we do here, as well as ensure that I can keep delivering deeply researched pieces that provide a diet culture free take on hot nutrition topics like ultra processed foods, like the Zoe app, or a deep dive on helping kids have a good relationship with sugar. All of those articles I've already written and you can read at laurathomas.substack.com. And if you're not yet totally convinced, then maybe this lovely review that I got recently will help. So this reader and listener wrote, I want to support the work you're doing as I think it's really important and I believe that you should be paid for your work. I agree. I value the model of subscriber direct support rather than ad revenue. I really like all your comments and interviews 
on the podcast about internalized capitalism and how it affects our views of things without us even realizing. Thank you for spending your valuable time and skills to do all this research and writing it up. I would love to see you talking about all of this in mainstream newspapers, TVs, magazines, and other media. It's such an important topic, and I really hope you get more and more momentum for your work. Also, on a personal note, you are helping me change my children's lives for the better by educating me about all of this. Really appreciate all that you're doing. Such a kind review. Thank you to the person who emailed that in. You know who you are. So yeah, it's £5 a month or £50 for the year, and you can sign up at laurathomas.substack.com or check out the show notes for this episode. And if you can't stretch to a paid subscription right now, you can email hello at laurathomasphd.co.uk for a comp subscription. No questions asked, just put snacks in the subject line. All right, gang, here's Colleen. Colleen, can you start by letting everyone know a little bit about you and the work that you do? Sure. So my name is Dr. Colleen Rickman, and I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and an eating disorders and body image specialist with a small group practice in Philadelphia. We see people virtually and in person. There's five of us. We all focus on body image and eating disorders and then sort of sub-niches within that community. And and one of mine is also perinatal mental health. Um, mm. So that's me professionally. I'm also the co-author of the book, The Inside Scoop on Eating Disorder Recovery. And a speaker and a, a writer of other things, and then just a mom, somebody with lived experience of an eating disorder, as well as infertility and IVF. And I have two IVF babies, Ezra <laughs> and Marigold, who live with me, and two like very chaotic dogs. And I live with all of them and my partner um, outside of Philadelphia. Wow. There's, yeah, loads of different parts of your identity, I suppose, that I'd love to dig into and and talk to you about. But I'd love to start by talking about your journey to parenthood. You mentioned there that you had your babies through IVF. And I know you talk really openly about this on your social media platforms and on your Substack. I'd love just to help orient the listeners a little bit to some of your experiences, if you could share what that journey has been like for you. For some reason, for me, the piece about having both of my babies through IVF feels really important to share. It almost just feels like a lot of my parenthood, like my identity hinges. It just feels so integral to who I am as a mother at this point and a parent. Mm -hmm. So I feel compelled to make it like I have it in bios. And <laughs> even my my partner at one point is like, why do you have like your professional psychologist and then also IVF mom? And I was like, I don't know. It just, it, it feels like it factors so much into the whole lens mm -hmm. that I view perinatal mental health at this point. So I um, was somebody who went through about five years of infertility. Once you launch into the process of um digging into what's going on with infertility, there's like a cascade of interventions that happens. Mm -hmm. And mine was pretty standard. And looking back, I just kind of like fell into the cascade and, and did what everybody said to do. Um, and I have like just different questions now about the process. Essentially, you now I did rounds of um, medication, medicated cycles, and then IUI is kind of like the next part of the process. And we had multiple failed IUIs, which is interuterine insemination. Mm -hmm. And then when you have enough of those 
you know, failures, the next step is IVF, mm. which I would joke with my partner and call it the, um, oh, what did I call it? <laughs> What's like the team? You know, in high school, there's like the varsity. I was like, well, I'm varsity and fertility now because I'm in that <laughs> IVF process. You graduated on to the next step. Yeah, I guess yeah. It, you need some sort of like levity in amongst what sounds to me to be like a an extraordinarily heavy process otherwise. Yeah, I think infertility and especially, I think IVF is its own specific form of trauma, but infertility is is very traumatic in my opinion. And for me, there was like this specific part of it that felt traumatic that I had this whole history of an eating disorder like a decade mm. long. And part of the reason I, I had um, just reasons to recover or reasons to get into a more stable place and having children was one of them. Mm. And so it felt like a slap in the face. Like I did all the work that I didn't want to do for many years. Yeah. And I just felt like um, I was promised something by professionals even though that's not true like it was just it was discussed a lot in sessions no but i am i'm just sitting here reflecting on how many times i've you know i i'm not sure that like leveraged <laughs> that is quite the right phrase but you know when when people ask me about what are the long term impacts on my health of of my eating disorder you know i will say um fertility is is one of the one of those long-term things yeah I can see how that's really a double-edged sword to say something like that because you know further down the line if that person goes through the motions of recovery and does that really excruciating work and then comes out the other side and their fertility and and we don't know if I'm not trying to insinuate that people's infertility is necessarily related to their eating disorder or not, but I hear what you're saying is that you were promised the, this prize at the end of of eating disorder recovery, and it wasn't there for you, and that in and yeah. of itself must have been so painful. It's so painful. There was a specific instance that stuck in my mind when I was in, I think it was high school or maybe like early college, but really young, and I was sitting with a therapist who was also trying to kind of like leverage fertility or. I, I would say trying her best to motivate me in a way that backfired. I was so really, <laughs> I was just not in a place to be motivated at that mm. point. But she asked, like, do you want to be skinny or do you want to be able to have kids one day? And I remember, Oops. like, yeah, I remember just saying skinny, like looking at her. And um, it haunted me for like all those years of infertility. I had that in my mind, um, that like, session and that yeah. exchange and I was like I did it I guess I brought this on myself and I you know I said that and I just like the whole thing was just very complex and painful and it felt like yeah just a, a twisting of a knife and I but also like I did it to myself and that it was just a really they were like devastating years the years of infertility yeah. and it sounds like so much self-blame there as well it's no one's fault yet I can imagine that that adds a, another layer of sort of pressure and complexity and and pain to the situation that was already really upsetting yeah so how did it play out from there what was the sort of next step if you will through these years of, of infertility um, well, once I, I started the IVF process I ended up actually getting what's called ovarian hyper stimulation syndrome. So 
produce like a lot of eggs and then got really sick after IVF. I was actually hospitalized. I then had a lot of embryos from that, which is like such a great thing, but also was arguably like a little bit aggressive, the IVF treatment that I got. But anyway, so we went through the process of several failed frozen embryo transfers and then several transfers that ended in miscarriage and then ended up at some point after I moved to Philadelphia, because we I was doing all this while I was living in a different state. And then we moved and relocated. And I remember saying, I'll do it. I'll try one last transfer. And then I think I need to either pause or, or just stop this for right now and find mm-hmm. another way to mm-hmm. pursue happiness. Like I have to, this is consuming everything. I'm becoming like a husk of a person, like I'm just in fertility. Mm-hmm. And so then that transfer ended up being my now three-year-old son, Ezra. Mm-hmm. But I was so burned out by that point that I, when I took the pregnancy test after I had the like the two-week wait and everything, I left it on the bathroom sink and went to like fold laundry because I was just so <laughs> sure that it wasn't going to be positive. And then yeah. I remember when I came back and saw it, I didn't, my mind after just like years and years and years of only negatives was like, I can't, I, it must have been a full 60 seconds where I was just like, what's this? Like what I could, I could not compute. Yeah. And then, yeah, after I had him, I did another embryo transfer, another miscarriage. And then my now one, one and a half year old daughter, Marigold mm-hmm. came after that. Wow. There's such a lot to process in there at such a wild, wild roller coaster by the sounds of things. And I can, yeah, I can totally see why you would be in that state of disbelief and kind of not allowing yourself to really let it wash over you that that this thing that you'd longed for for such a long time was was real. I could imagine that there was a kind of sense that it could be taken from you at at any moment. And so allowing yourself to just get in touch with that must have been yeah, putting yourself out there to to let it be real. You also mentioned, you know, in amongst your IVF journey that there were some losses, some pregnancy losses. You've written really beautifully about pregnancy loss, body image and grief, and specifically about miscarriage as a form of ambiguous loss. This is a concept that I find really helpful just in body image work body embodiment work generally. But I wondered if for anyone who was unfamiliar with that concept, if you can share that, what that is and and what that means and looks like in the context of pregnancy loss. So ambiguous loss, I guess the simplest definition would be loss without any real closure. Loss where there's not not that there's ever a clear cut path, but where there's a less, even less of a clear cut path than normal from loss to acceptance. And I definitely think miscarriage and pregnancy loss falls underneath that umbrella for sure, just because there's often loss with no tangible evidence of ever having anything. You know, other things, of course, in our society, fall under ambiguous loss, like loss where somewhat it feels like a death, but the person is still physically present, like if somebody mm-hmm. has dementia or if you're estranged from a family member, things like that. Yeah. But with, with miscarriage, I think the concept of ambiguous loss also really connects with the concept of disenfranchised grief, mm. which feels so <laughs> important 
to me in, in the, the discussion of it all. I haven't heard that term before. I would love to unpack that a little bit more. Okay, so disenfranchised grief is essentially, it's grief that's not like publicly accepted. It's grief that's not sort of socially acknowledged and interpersonally and socially mourned. So a lot of times I like to call grief, like if you lose a family member, sometimes I'll call it Tupperware grief because people, at least at first, hopefully like show up with like Tupperware containers and dinners. And then disenfranchised grief, like that of a miscarriage, is more like there oftentimes there's no big show of support. Like there are mm-hmm. no like Tupperware dinners or people showing up. People don't know how to talk about it, even even less than they know how to talk about just regular the, death. Yeah, like normal grief. And oftentimes when you have a miscarriage, there's also that added component of not having even shared if it was an earlier miscarriage yes. that you were pregnant. So you're going through this like life-altering, awful grieving process alone. But, you know, you haven't even shared that there's something to grieve. And it's just confusing and sad. And um, it's a really specific form of grief, I would say. Mm, Yeah, I think as a collective, we do so poorly with grieving. You know, as a society, it's it's privatized. It's it needs to be neat and tidy. And for example, if if somebody dies or if you have a miscarriage or you know there are any of these types of life events, we rarely get time off work or right leave or anything to just have the space and the 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 time to process some of what's happened to us. So yeah, I, I think you know, what What you're saying is there's a sort of additional layer to it where if it's an invisible loss or it's, I don't know, something that, yeah, intangible, I suppose, to to other people, where does that grief belong? There's nowhere to, to put it, really. Yeah. And so much of grieving that's helpful, like so much of what I think helps grieving people is like physicality and like presence of others and showing Community, up. And, yeah. Yeah. Like, and I'm, I'm not going to take this from you, like this sadness. I'm going to sit with you in it. And I don't have the right words because normally there just are no right words. So like, let's let you feel the sadness and I'll be here next mm-hmm. to you. And yeah, with disenfranchised grief, that's almost like gone. Like there yeah. is just none of that. Yeah. Going back to this idea of ambiguous loss, how do you think that can help us, you know, understand or process our experiences in some way? You know, I think even the term, like even when I just had that knowledge that there was a word for it, Mm -hmm. that felt so affirming. So just even understanding like that's what you're going through and maybe letting that sort of propel you to reach out if possible to people who feel really safe even just one or two I can't think of anything just more important for the grieving process of pregnancy loss than some like I don't know catalyst to reach out and share to people who feel safe because that was something I definitely um at least two of the miscarriages just totally had in in silent like didn't really share with almost anyone 
Mm-hmm. And that changed my process for the third. And I had, um, I remember it was just awful, like they always are, but like I had really beautiful showings of support from friends, like mm-hmm. cards. And I remember one friend sent flowers and then like two months after sent another bouquet and was like still thinking of you. And I was really touched oh. by that because I was like, oh, it's like, not only is it, would it be a grief that's like totally unseen, but even with normal grief, a lot of times you get like the initial show of support and then it phases out. And this person just, it's like still here. I still love you. you know, like I know mm-hmm. it still hurts. Mm-hmm. And that was all because I just tried to navigate it differently and asked for yeah. help that, that last time. Yeah. I think what, you know, what you're speaking to is this idea around grief that we have to follow a strict protocol, right? Like there's that initial period where you might be allowed to, you know, completely fall apart at the seams, but then you are expected to, you know, do that within the, I don't know, the two to three days that your boss allows you off of work. And then afterwards you have to contain your grief or at least make your grief more palatable to people. And what you're saying is that I'm sort of reading between the lines here, but there is no time frame for grief and when it's when you've had a chance, well, it's never going to go away, is it? But, you know, what you're saying is that, yeah, two months down the line, just having someone acknowledge that your pain is still there, that it's still valid, that it's that someone sees you and is is holding you. That's so powerful to have yeah. that. But in our society, yeah, like you have your allotted time frame for grieving. And after that, sorry, no more flowers, no more cards, no more. No one's going to check in on you or give you time off work. I don't know why I'm so like helping on the work thing. It's so real though. Like I think I, what, during one of my miscarriages, I remember there was a country that happened to grant, I think it was three days off to people who had pregnancy loss. I don't, do you know what country that, because I remember it was like in the world and as it was all happening to me and I, I was so like in a haze, but also aware of like, that's awesome. And three days, like, and I can't believe we don't even have, there's no three days here. That's for sure. But also like, yay, that's really nice. It's being acknowledged, but three days is nothing. Like it's, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It was just, but the work thing. So it's so real that it's just incredibly difficult to, to show up to things like work when you're like in the haze of grief. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it just, it speaks to how much society under capitalism dehumanizes our experiences and we we are given our a lot of time to grieve and then or or not as in the case of the US and then you're expected to get back to work and be productive and if your grief spills over into your work then you know you're going to probably someone's going to say something about that um i i don't know which country it is uh, I know that they've had conversations about it here in the UK about having some sort of leave for pregnancy loss and and other kinds of losses, but nothing that I know of that is formal at this point. But also, again, yeah, like really a few days off work is probably not going to cut it for most people. And, you know, alternatively, some people might actually find it really helpful to be at work and be around people and and kind of taking their mind off of it so yeah it's not there's no one right way to to mourn or to grieve yeah so true I also did a an episode a little while back with Jenny Ag who wrote a book 
about pregnancy loss called Life Almost and just kind of how there are a lot of unanswered questions around pregnancy loss and infertility. And I'm going to link to that in the show notes for people who haven't heard that because I think that's also a really helpful resource if, yeah, if this is something, a conversation that you need to have more of in your life right now. I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about, I guess you called it body loathing. You talked about this sense of really loathing your body that you had in relation to miscarriage. And um, if it's okay with you, I'm going to read out something that that you wrote as part of a Substack post, and I will link to that as well. And you wrote, the only thing that makes sense, to me at least, is to allow all of these emotions and thoughts to wash over you. Yes, this includes intense body loathing. Don't try to fight it or even shake free from it, at least at first. Honor that these feelings are because this loss, the loss that many others won't even know about, is real. It's real and it's excruciating and it's evidence of love. And sometimes when grief is this big and things hurt this badly, we need a place to funnel the pain. If body loathing is the place for you in this moment, that's okay. That has to be okay. Can you speak to why this idea of allowing body loathing is so crucial? Because I think it's so counter to the narrative that we are told, whether that's about body image in relation to like weight and shape concerns or, you know, where we're told like, you know, that you have to come up with like positives that you like about your body or even in the context of pregnancy related body changes, pregnancy loss, we're told like, well, your body did this amazing thing. You know, even if you didn't give birth that, oh, well, at least, you know, you can get pregnant or like, so, so, you know, there's always this like positive spin put on it. Mm-hmm. And so it just felt really refreshing for me to to read like, no, you're allowed to hate your body and you're allowed to just be really angry with it mm-hmm. um, and feel let down by it and feel betrayed by it. So yeah, I just wondered if, you know, from a, a therapist's perspective, if you could explain why that is so powerful and crucial. Yeah, that that positive spin felt so um, offensive to me, mm-hmm. especially through that journey in fertility and then pregnancy mm-hmm. loss. Like, And it just felt like everyone, like, and people were, of course, coming from a good place. But a lot of times it almost felt like, but you will like keep going and I have so much hope for you and and which is like maybe sometimes what I needed but a lot of times I was like this is just so painful and like devastating and there's a lot of fear here that my whole life something that I've like wanted is not mm-hmm. going to happen and mm-hmm. it almost feels like you you cannot tolerate sitting in it mm-hmm. with me and you're not the one going like I, I'm the one actually like so if you can't tolerate even being a bystander you know that's so upsetting um and that the idea of like allowing yourself to just hate your body and be really mad at it when it comes to infertility and pregnancy loss it almost reminds me of like the the chronic illness community often talks mm-hmm. about like the eating disorder messaging on social media about yeah. um, like appreciating your body and loving your body and the function of it and how that feels really invalidating because like if my body, um, if I, what if I don't appreciate it? What if I'm like, it feels like it's failing me? What if it doesn't function, quote unquote, like yeah. it's supposed to? Or do I fall in all of this? I feel like I related to that a lot during this process of like, mm. and I'll speak for me just personally. Sure, I also yeah. don't want to say other people feel this way, but I felt like my body did 
let me down. I wanted those babies like so much and it didn't do what I wanted it to do. I can't imagine anything more important in my life than that. And it let me down like repeatedly. And I was just like, I had such rage and I was like, I just felt like it, it needed to be felt. And I needed to be like, no, I don't, I don't need to connect with it right now. Like I am at this point, just like any relationship we have with like a spouse, for example, you're at points where you're going to be just so angry and need (laughs) space from your spouse (laughs) or your partner. And that's how I felt during that period. And if I didn't want to be like pushed to like reunite at that time, I was like, no, I want to sleep in different bedrooms. I want time away. I want to like hate you. And I do. And that, that is allowed at least for me. And then, you know, some of the people that I work with, it's, there's something like affirming about that being just Mm -hmm. full permission, legalize hating your body. Yeah. I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about the concept of being sort of positively embodied and kind of having this mind body connection and being attuned to what's going on in our bodies. And I also think that there needs to be space for the fact that sort of disengaging or or being disembodied is also protective and powerful and is Mm -hmm. a coping mechanism. And okay, maybe it's not sustainable forever, but there are times where that where you just need to be able to check out and just disengage and it sounds like that was part of your your process at least and and it might be a helpful thing for other people to hold on to especially in the face of like messaging around appreciate your body and think about what it can do and and so on like i can yeah totally see how that reads really badly when you're yeah. in like that mm. also i i do think it's some people might find that helpful for pregnancy too, so that it's helpful maybe in pregnancy loss, mm-hmm. but also pregnancy can really just be an awful time for like to live in your body for yes. some of us. So I, that was another time in my life, which is interesting because I just, there's so much devastation about the losses, but both pregnancies um, that were like completed, I white knuckled it is the best terminology I can use. I just like got through and they were just really hard experiences, probably the hardest physical experiences I've ever Mm -hmm. had in my life, like far beyond, you know, more challenging and uncomfortable than when I was in like the depths of the eating disorder. I felt like it was helpful. And I know I've heard other people say this too, to like be allowed, which is an interesting dichotomy because I was so grateful. Like I wanted that that was like everything in my life had led up to that moment. And I wanted those babies so much. And so um, like hated all of it. <laughs> Pregnancy was just so, so hard in my opinion. So allowing people to really, if they need to be really like unhappy and disengaged in their body during that time too, feels mm-hmm. like an unpopular message, but one that I think is like kind of important. I t- yeah, I completely agree. I think it can, I mean, I know that there are additional layers if you've experienced, you know, pregnancy loss and gone through IVF because, you know, all of that trauma is, is stored in your body, right? And then you're adding something that is so, yeah, so desperately wanted. And at the same time, it can feel 
I, I, I guess it can kind of be activating of everything, all of those other experiences that you've been through emotionally, as well as the physical toll that that pregnancy and birth and you know everything that goes on in that sort of especially first year or two years afterwards mm. it's yeah it's it's so much and um similarly to baby loss pregnancy loss or baby loss we're not given space to grieve to, to, for the, the grief that i think is an inherent part of pregnancy and mm-hmm. and childbirth um, and being yeah. a parent in late stage capitalism, like just yes. all of it. Um, because yeah, you know, you have your kids. So Colleen, why are, why are we still talking about it? You should be happy and just getting on with your life. You know, that's the message that we're so often given. Oh, your body did this amazing thing. That's true. And that was a very difficult experience. Yeah. And people say like for things like birth trauma, so often you hear, again, this is, I guess, goes with that toxic positivity, but like, well, as long as you got your baby, as long as you got a healthy baby. And I'm like, that's so duly insulting to both parents who don't have a quote unquote healthy baby at the end, like whose babies have, you know, physical or medical issues. And then also Mm. to people who did experience like trauma or, or was like, you know, they're just things didn't go as planned are also allowed to feel things and to have grief. The main theme here is toxic positivity is like really problematic for this stage of life. It doesn't serve anyone. And and I yeah. think that connects back, yeah, back to kind of what, what you were saying about being given permission to just loathe your body in the face of, you know, otherwise messaging that just tells you to love your body and appreciate the things that it can do i think we need to make a lot more space for these tensions these complicated feelings so not to be like well you have your babies now but also (laughs) i did want to talk to you a little bit about parenting from the perspective that you know you are someone with lived experience of an eating disorder and also an eating disorder therapist raising these children. And I love the messages that you put out around, you know, protecting their embodiment and their relationship with food. And I'd really love it if you could share, you know, a couple of the messages that you feel are most important to pass down to your kids to, I suppose, help disrupt that intergenerational transmission of body shame and disordered eating. I think about this every day. One thing that I do want to make sure I say, because I just, I feel really strongly that there's a lot of pressure around this generation, like our generation of moms to break intergenerational toxicity or messaging. And I just feel really strongly that you don't have to be perfectly healed to do that. Mm. You can be like still really struggling and breaking like those intergenerational messages. I, I think that's really important to know. And also this might even be like a less popular take, but <laughs> that to not put too much pressure on yourself to break like all like maybe your role is breaking maybe you break these ones and then over there you're still working on that or those are like you're like just I don't know. I think there's a lot of weird pressure now to be these like totally healed mothers there there is and I'm so glad that you you said that I think 
not only is there a lot of pressure in the form of often like, you know, things that we should say or do or these like, you know, these like scripts that you often read on social media. There's a lot of those. And some of them can be really, really helpful. Some of them less so. But I, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of how sometimes we need to say and do a lot less and how that's also okay. <laughs> you don't have to, like you know, do like have all the little scripts memorized. But what might be a good starting point is if you don't talk shit about your own body in front of your kids. Like if you just yeah. don't do that, that that might be all yeah. that is needed. There are helpful things that we can do, of course. But yeah, I really appreciate you just kind of giving that that caveat that, yeah, you you don't have to be all have everything all figured out. It's enough yeah. to be kind of thinking and reflecting and and not saying the shit things. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I feel like that is huge. That alone is just so monumental. The shift of like not saying negative stuff about our bodies or other people's like, it's actually pretty easy once you get like, it's easy to start to not like comment on people's yeah. bodies. Like once you yeah. really get into the hang of it, like in any direction, like yeah. not comment um, compliments or like negative things. So that's huge. And at this point, I do also want to say they're one and three. So I'm probably so, so freaking annoying to like parents of older kids. Like, I think I know what I'm talking about or something. I have, you like, and me I've both. been in this you for like, yeah, <laughs> like three years. They're like, what do you know? But for right now, my feeling from what I've seen is that it's almost like away from bodies and food. There's messages that are like more important, like than even the things you say about bodies and food. Like, one of the ones that I feel most strongly about, and I say to them, I try to say it every day, is like, I'm so happy you're in this world. Like, I am so happy you're here. The things that you add to my life, I like can't even put into words because I just feel like that's a really like, there's something very protective about that message. Like, at least one person in this world is like, thinks like the sun rises and sets. Like, like she is just so happy that I'm here. Like that. And that's also, I like to tell people that because I feel like it's really also easy. Like instead of being perfectly healed and the, you know, the most um, knowledgeable about all, all the body positivity things, like focus on making sure they feel like you're just delight in their presence that doesn't have to do with their appearance, you know? Yeah, that that idea of um, taking delight in the fact that they're there and they're in your life and you know they're gonna absorb that that energy as it were i love that and also i was just gonna make the caveat that i'm also sometimes displeased to see my child and that's okay yeah if you have those. so <laughs> especially at like six o'clock in the morning when i'm like you're supposed to still be asleep yeah so yeah i didn't want that to sound like uh an, an imperative i think there was this research i could be wrong but i thought there was like research that you just have to do it for like five or 10 minutes a day be like ah, you like and that can be fundamental to like self-esteem building but I also don't know if that's true I feel like I could have made that up but <laughs> I think so it doesn't don't have fact to check, be all day please. long yeah <laughs> just just trust me but like in a similar sense to that I also think another thing that's just so helpful for like our kids and their bodies and is the way we like talk about sex and their body parts yeah. like using the the medical terms for body parts and not 
being, um, like I talked on another podcast about how I recognized with my daughter when I was saying the word vagina that I felt vaguely uncomfortable, like at first. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, well, there's nobody in her life right now that's going to show her how to feel comfortable. And like that my body parts are all like allowed and other than me, like I, I need to kind of step into that, own it. And, and so I got a book, like a, the yes. pop out vagina book or something. Like I got, <laughs> and we like read it every day. And I was, and that's another like really kind of basic, easy way to show them like, this is um, how to just feel comfortable and like safe in your body. I love that. I, I'm going to get the link to that book and put it in the show notes or anyone else who's kind of, yeah, because I mean, I think our generation, we were like given all of these kind of like cutesy code words for labia and vagina. And of course, it feels uncomfortable because the first time that we're really having to use those words in and teach other people about those words. So, of course, it would feel uncomfortable. I love that you're normalizing that. And yeah, there's tons of really cool books and yeah. resources that you can use to normalize that. I wanted to ask you just really quickly about one sort of food-related message that you shared on, I think it was a reel. This is something that you want to, like in a message that you want to instill into your kids where you've said that food is not just fuel. You're allowed to eat for boredom, for pleasure, to self-soothe. Your appetite isn't scary for us ever. I just love this message so much and I just wanted to hear you uh, kind of unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, I think my hope is to just make food a real, like it, you're allowed to um, interact with food in the ways that are innate to all of us. And um, you're never going to be micromanaged. And like, I will never micromanage you. And I hope that you don't feel the need to micromanage yourself as you get older, um, because we all like that is a very healthy and okay, like human drive is to use food we have for like, you know, ever to to celebrate, to mourn, to self-soothe at times for hunger, for things other than hunger. Like it's, um, I just hope to be able to foster an environment where it's all allowed and that it's never like there are never um, nonverbal or verbal messages that like your appetite's scary or I have a problem with you mm. interacting with food. Like I just really want to be protective of their relationship with it. I think that the line that like really, really resonated for me was that piece that your appetite isn't scary for us ever. And I also just wanted to acknowledge that for a lot of people I know listening to the podcast and who read the newsletter, their kid's appetite does feel scary and overwhelming to them. And and I just wanted to say, you know, like, we see you and can you know that that is the the soup that we're swimming in so it's totally understandable that you feel like that and something that you know when i'm doing workshops and things on embodied eating i ask parents to look for look for the signs that you can trust your child look for you know the signs that they know how to trust their own bodies and think about what we can learn from that. So I, I'll offer that. I don't know if that's helpful, but 
I just wanted to acknowledge that, yeah, our kids' appetites can be scary sometimes. Yeah. And I'm with you, Colleen. Like, they shouldn't be. But it's the the messaging that we've been indoctr- indoctrinated into to thinking. Yeah. So. Like, it is very counterculture to say, like, your appetite isn't scary and you're allowed to eat to self-soothe. So I totally empathize and understand why it, people do feel like that fear. And, and it comes from a place like, think about the stakes that we feel like we're under with this. Like the stakes that they're trying to sell us are like, you're not a good mom or parent if you mm, don't yeah. manage food and yeah, in this way or their weight. And that's like just scary for everyone. So I, I have so much empathy for people um, trying to like break free. Yeah. Even just, again, you know, going back to what we talked about before about not having to be perfect with this stuff, but even, you know, saying to your kids, I trust your appetite, even if you're not 100% there yet. But I think yeah. that's something so powerful if you could at least, you know, in, in giving that message at least. Yeah. All right, Colleen, this has been so great. Like I said to you off mic, there are so many different ways that I felt like we could have taken this conversation. We could have just talked about parenting stuff. We could have just talked about the grief stuff, but we tried to squish it all in. So thank you so much for being here. At the end of every episode, my guest and I share what they've been snacking on. So it could be anything. It could be a show. It could be a literal snack, whatever it is. So can you share with us what have you been snacking on lately? Yes. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. This was such a great conversation. Okay. I have two. I have a literal snack I've been loving is these Trader Joe's chocolate sea salt graham crackers stop that are stop oh i'm so i'm so like last christmas my brother sent me like a huge care package of stuff just from trader joe's and it was all their uh-huh. like crunchy great snacks and we can't get them here so yeah they they sound amazing they're so good they have like they have it down with the snacks they're just, they're really on point with their snacks yeah yeah and those are great for like I like to have them, especially while I'm reading, which is the other thing I'm snacking on, which I wrote it down so I didn't, I did justice to the actual title. <laughs> I'm rereading, um, it's called Like a Mother, A Feminist Journey Through. Oh, it's Angela Garbs, right? Yes. 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 Oh, I haven't the read that, but culture. I've, yeah, I've read her follow-up book, which is Essential Labor. I don't know if you've read that. Oh, so, so good. good. Yeah, yeah I've read that one. I really like both of them. Honestly, like they're just, they're the type of thing you have to read. I'm rereading this one because I'm like, I just didn't, I feel like there's so much amazing stuff in it. And I, oh my gosh, I love, yeah, her writing is just incredible. And the way she writes about motherhood is so different than what I've seen elsewhere. So highly Uh, recommend. Yeah, I know. I have thought about going back and reading her first book after coming to her through essential labor and her substack is great as well if yeah if, if anyone is i'll link to that in the in the show notes but okay yeah you're making me think i need to go back and read that <laughs> so my snack is an a literal snack this time so there is another substack newsletter called vittles that probably everyone is sick of hearing me talk about because i link to them like every week in our like weekly community threads Ruby Tando is one of the writers for Vittles and she did this like deep, deep, deep dive into London ice cream culture and all the different kind of ice creams from 
that are not just like gelato and ice cream and like the things that you hear a lot about. And she tried like, I don't know, something like 350 different kinds of ice cream all across London. She narrowed it down to like a top 16. So this is a really long way of telling you that <laughs> my snack is one of the ice creams that she topped, picked. I think it was like number 14 or 15 on the list. And it's called Vagabond Ice Cream. And they do these vegan like chalk ices. I don't know. What, what do you call them in, in the States? Like chalk blocks or some, I don't know, some like, it's got like a layer of chocolate around it. What is that called in the States? Like an, an ice cream sandwich? No, because that's like, that's like a cookie, right? Yeah. It's on, on either side. Okay. Someone, I'm sure good, someone though. in the comments will let us know. But the flavor is like a peanut butter ice cream. And then the Ooh. chocolate has bits of pretzel around it. So you've got that salty, sweet, crunchy, like it's a textural delight. Oh my God. Um, I need for this. anyone who is like a sensory seeker, that's yes, very, very good. Colleen, would you mind sharing just quickly where people can find you and your work? My website is just ColleenReichman.com. And then I have an Instagram, which is at Dr. Colleen Reichman. I tinker around on TikTok under the same username. <laughs> I I struggle with making those like educational though. A lot of them are just silly. And let's see. Oh, I started a threads because everybody's doing it. So I jumped <laughs> on the bandwagon, same username. And then my, I have a Substack, which is musings from a mama, which I'm trying to figure out a way to write regularly because it just brings me such joy to write yeah. about the complexities of motherhood. And then my email is just ColleenReichman at gmail.com. Oh, cool. I don't know that anyone's ever shared, like, straight up shared their email before. But I love that. Yeah, <laughs> Just get in touch, everyone. Just, yeah. Um, Come on over. <laughs> um, no, I really love your Substack, and I'm glad to hear that you're going to be thinking of ways to write more often. So, yeah, I will link to all of that in the show notes. Colleen, it's been so great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Yes, thanks for having me. And we have another snack. Thanks so much for listening to the Can I Have Another Snack podcast. You can support the show by subscribing in your podcast player and leaving a rating and review. And if you want to support the show further and get full access to the Can I Have Another Snack universe, you can become a paid subscriber. It's just £5 a month or £50 for the year, as well as getting tons of cool perks. You help make this work sustainable and we couldn't do it without the support of paying subscribers. Head to laurathomas.substack.com to learn more and sign up today. Can I Have Another Snack is hosted by me, Laura Thomas. Our sound engineer is Lucy Dearlove. Fiona Bray formats and schedules all of our posts and makes sure that they're out on time every week. Our funky artwork is by Caitlin Preser and the music is by Jason Barkhouse. Thanks so much for listening. Can I have another snack? <laughs>